Hello, and welcome to The Scoop, a provincial newscast and podcast with stories from LJI journalists around British Columbia. Each week, reporters from Revelstoke, Cortez Island, Kootenai, Terrace, Prince George, and Smithers will share the news affecting their place in BC. I'm your host and producer, Pamela Hassan, from CSEK News and Smithers. The Scoop was made possible by the Community Radio Fund of Canada and the Local Journalism Initiative Program, or LJI. Follow The Scoop on CICK Smithers Community Radio, 93.9 FM, every Thursday and Saturday at noon, online at smithersradio.com, and of course, wherever you get your podcasts. Puzzled on how to find living or working space in this economy? Cortez Island Company is designing and selling prefabricated plywood houses that fit together like a puzzle. Fun! Lonnie Taylor has that scoop. The city of Kootenai is increasing the price to park your car in order to fund future transportation infrastructure. CJLY's Scott Onyshuk scooped that story just in time before his meter ran out. And Japanese environmental organizations concerned about BC pellet exports invited two British Columbia environmental groups to discuss the impact of wood fiber harvesting for pellets for both countries. Seifer's Ian Gregg gets to the root of that issue today on The Scoop. This sudden cold snap in northern BC threatens the lives of the unhoused in Smithers, so the town has erected a temporary warming center for the week. I'm on that scoop today. Godzilla, king of the monsters, alive, surging up from the depths of the sea on a tidal wave of terror to wreak vengeance on mankind. Revelstoke's Megan Dooling has the scoop on how one local bag maker's creation made it from Revelstoke to the hands of Kurt Russell on the set of the new Godzilla television series. That and more on today's scoop. A small piece of Revelstoke is featured in the latest Godzilla series. This is Revelstoke's Trevor Kaler. He takes old canvas from seat belts and makes bags and other things. He owns USED and has a small factory set up on his lot in a local trailer park. The seat belts come from pick and pull in Kelowna, so I cut the, I cut the belts out there. So how did one of his bags end up in the series? I like to try to source locally where I can, so just out of, you know, Curiosity, one day I, I did a specific search for BC and Trevor's website came up. Haida Harper is based in Vancouver. She works in the props department in the film industry. She was the assistant props master on Monarch. She worked with the props master and the director of the series to find the perfect bag for May. I brought in bags from the UK. I brought in bags from the States. And then... I just happened to come across Trevor's website. Harper thought Kaler's bag fit the aesthetic of the character. I just loved the fact that his bag was kind of gritty, but like not like gritty is the wrong word, but just funky, like almost grunge in a sense, you know, sort of taking it back to the old school 90s kind of feel and not but not being too masculine, you know, like it did. It still has a bit of that femininity to it as well and I just I don't know I just there was something about it that I just felt would work for her. Harper reached out to Kaler and asked him to make six replicate bags. This was a tall order as everything he makes is unique. It's a pain because um, every bag's one of a kind because they're all different seatbelts so having a to remember what I made her and make three more identical ones. They also ordered three 
or four separate straps because I guess the bag gets ripped off the strap. So, and they wanted identical bags because some went to Japan and some went to other sets in around the, around Canada, I guess. And Kaylor was going in blind. Harper wasn't allowed to tell him what he was making the bags for. She told me that there was a monster. That's it. <laughs> and, and there was snow. Yeah, so that's what I got. A year and a half later, he saw Annie Hewitt at the market. She's a local who works in film and was working on Monarch in the art department. And she told me that it was going to be Godzilla. And she actually showed me a picture of Kurt Russell behind the scenes with, a, with the bag. So uh, exciting for sure. The series is out now on Apple TV. This is 20 years this year making the bags. I have branched out. Other companies are coming to me with their garbage sort of thing. Collecting safety harnesses from big companies. I'm, I'm still enjoying it. You know, the fact that he's taking all of these discarded seat belts that would normally, you know, most people would think are garbage and sourcing them and getting them and using them for a fantastically cool purpose. I just think it's really cool. It was it was a lot of hard work. And for me, that moment of them choosing that bag and me being able to put Trevor's bag on film was a really cool moment for me. For more on this story, including to look at pictures, check out the news section of our website, stokefm.com. This is Ian Gregg reporting for CIFA Radio's Due North on 88.7 FM. In early December, BC's Ministry of Forest announced changes to lumber regulation that intended to drive local manufacturing and job growth. These changes focused on expanding manufacturing requirements for the export of cedar and cypress lumber and come into effect February 1st, 2024. To paraphrase the release, the legislation requires mills in the interior to fully manufacture cedar and cypress wood that has been harvested. Examples of manufactured wood products include veneer, panel products, decking, flooring, molding, shingles, and siding. Wood products that do not meet specifications in the regulation, such as logs, must obtain an exemption from manufacturing requirement and pay a fee in lieu of manufacture to the province. Upon inquiry, Public Affairs Officer Jason Tolman provided the statement from Ministry of Forests, citing examples of wood products that do not meet the specifications for export, which includes logs, sawn logs other than cedar and cypress that exceed a certain size. Cedar and cypress lumber is deemed finished if it is subjected to three or more processes prior to export. A process includes a change in thickness, width, length, profile, texture, moisture content, or joining or chopping. The statement also notes, wood pellets are considered manufactured under the Manufactured Forest Products Regulation. So while regulations became more stringent surrounding cedar and cypress lumber, Michelle Connolly and Ben Parfit embarked to Japan, where their presentations and dialogue focused largely on the export of British Columbia pellets. Why would people in Japan be concerned about forestry practices in BC? Yeah, we were invited by three Japanese groups, so Global Environmental Forum, Mighty Earth Japan, and Friends of the Earth Japan. And a lot of people of Japan uh, are concerned about the fact that their pellets come from a place where we are still logging natural forests. This came as a total shock to a lot of the people we presented to, but of course the groups that sponsored our visit have been working on this for a few years now. 
They were actually here in North Central BC last summer with Japan's public broadcaster. So they, they got a bit of a sense of what's going on here. So what would an expanding pellet industry mean for primary forests? And what risks would sourcing pellets from BC then pose to Japan? The, the pellet plants in Japan are supplying electricity to people. So they basically got into biomass energy after the earthquake in 2011 and then the subsequent tsunami that wiped out most of their nuclear capacity. So they were relying on a lot of nuclear energy before that. And um, after that, they were really interested in pursuing other sources of energy that they thought were cleaner and greener. There are also coal power plants in the same area that we went to where we saw the um, pellet burning facilities. Japan is trying to be clean and renewable and green, like a lot of places are. So I think they're trying to be conscientious and try not to do harm. And so they, in theory, maybe there's a way to source this material sustainably, but in our opinion right now, the way forest management happens in BC, which is that we're still liquidating natural forests, including old growth, we don't agree that it's sustainable right now. And sourcing the raw material for this electricity source concerns them So BC has always sold itself as sustainable to Japan. Our government does a really hard sell on Japan on how sustainable and green we are. So they can't be blamed for not knowing the truth. And that's why we went there. Were you able to inform the delegates you met with in Japan of anything new? Or were they already well informed about We did a public presentation in Tokyo, and we also did a public presentation in Sendai. We met with business media, as well as the public broadcaster. We met with Sumitomo itself, the company that actually used to own the pellet plant that was located here in Prince George until 2022. So we met with the public, we met with the corporation, we met with the investment group. So it's called Sumitomo Mitsui Trust Bank, which basically kind of subsidizes the pellet industry there. And so most people did did not actually have a sense of how bad the situation was. One of the things our group does is we go and document forests before they're logged, if we can possibly get there in time, which is, you know, sometimes rarer than we'd like, but also documenting what it looks like after. So I think they've been getting fed a lot of messages from industry saying forestry is sustainable NBC. Don't worry about it. We're all we're managing it. Well, that's fine. Just listen to us. So most people were shocked. Uh, I think the most upsetting response we got from one person who exclaimed, I thought you were a developed country. (laughs) Ms. Connolly, if people want to learn more about the situation in BC regarding forestry practices, pellet harvest, etc., are there any events that Conservation North is putting on where people could learn more and engage with the work you're doing? Yes, we have an event coming up on Friday, January 19th. We are going to put out the notice probably next week. It is going to take place at 7 p.m. somewhere in Prince George. We haven't solidified the venue yet. And it will be meant to tell everyone what's going on at the provincial level in terms of forests and getting people to kind of provide their feedback to the provincial government. Thanks so much for your time today, Michelle. Thanks, Ian. I'm Cifer. This is Ian Gregg reporting for CIFA Radio's Due North on 88.7 FM. This initiative is made possible by the Community Radio Fund of Canada through the Local Journalism Initiatives Program. Find our news stories online at canada-info.ca 
or cfur.ca. To hear Ian's entire interview with Michelle Connolly of Conservation North, go to frequencynews.ca and find Prince George or CFUR, or you can visit cfur.ca. In Smithers, I spoke with the Director of Community Services for the town about the recent emergency warming centre that was erected on January 10th due to the sudden and extreme cold weather. This warming tent has power and heat and is built to help Smithers' unhoused population stay warm during the day while seeking indoor overnight arrangements. My name is Will George, Director of Community Services with the town of Smithers. So last night on January 9th, Town Council approved a temporary emergency warming shelter at the Smithers Library parking lot. So that's right across from the encampment. This tent is a 24 by 14 tent in the parking lot there. And this this is a emergency warming center tent there. This is something that was brought up by our ESS team with the town of Smithers, as well as with supports from the situation table. So Really, we have wraparound services from the Office of the Wet'suwet'en, the RCMP, Dizelkant, Northern Health. There's a variety of organizations through the Situation Table that will be providing service. And this is temporary just during the cold snap that we have here until the, until the cold weather warning is rescinded, hopefully next week. We have, you know, an electrician came in this morning to install a hundred amp electrical service at the, the, near the library there to make sure that we have the warming center that's equipped with electrical heaters. So, you know, we do have a um, emergency task number through emergency management and climate readiness. That's uh, EMCR to support the town uh, with this financial cost that we'll be um, incurring through this. So that will be uh, through our task number there. In last month's council meeting, there was a letter that was shared um, and read by Wendy Wright of Smithers Public Library as to their decision to allow people into the library before it opens, which is typically noon most days, in order for people to warm up. Is that still happening? So what I will say on that is, you know, there are some sites um, where people can go for the overnight um, shelter, whether it's at Good Acre Place or during the day, um, such as at the Friendship Center where people can warm up. Um, This was brought up as a suggestion um, to town council to look at the library as a warming center. Um, You know, the resources uh, for for this warming center that we're looking at in the parking lot with the heated tent, tent are what we're providing for services for those individuals that will not be going to overnight sheltering service, whether it's a Good Acre or other locations in the community to, to ensure that that they still have a, a warm place where they can where they can warm up there just in this this overnight time period where it's dropping down quite quite a bit. Is there any plans by the town to extend this for the entire winter? Uh, I believe the the shelter that you're referring to a few years ago, there was some safety concerns around that. So that that was something that, of course, we explored. And we did put a, a call out since since last winter for indoors uh, shelter space overnight um, that we could uh, rent out, that we could have available. Um, there wasn't any um, available options in the community, which was unfortunate. Uh, but we do want to make sure that there is a warming space that is is available. And this uh, this warming tent that's open 24-7 and, and monitored is, is what we have available for this 
cold spell that we have for the next uh, week or so here. Now, I will say that this is is just temporary. So it's being set up today. It's coming down once it uh, warms up a little bit. And we continue to work with our partners to explore more longer term options. The city of Kootenai is home to around 63,000 people, which means there are a lot of cars and a lot of traffic in the downtown area. At a city council meeting on January 9th, a decision was made to increase the parking price for Kootenai's downtown. Here's Scott Onyshuk from CJLY. At Nelson City Council meeting on Tuesday, January 9th, an increase to hourly parking fees and parking fines was proposed and passed. Hourly parking will increase from $1.25 per hour to $2 per hour. This is the first increase since 2017 when the rate changed from $1 to $1.25. Category 1, 2, and 3 fines will also be increasing. A Category 1 fine and expired meter will increase to $40 from $25 with an early payment option within 14 days of $20, previously $10. A Category 2 fine parked exceeding 2-hour maximum will increase to $55 from $35 with an early payment option of $25, previously $15. And a Category 3 fine parked while at a white or yellow curb will increase to $80 from $50 with an early payment option of $35, previously $20. Amy Mooney, the city's deputy chief financial officer, presented a PowerPoint to council explaining the motive behind the proposed increases. One reason was the lack of availability of parking spaces downtown. In the downtown parking strategy, studies showed that key locations in the downtown core were well over optimal stall occupancy of 85% during the hours of 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Other reasons include ensuring city infrastructure and services will be future ready, and promoting low-carbon transportation options such as transit, cycling, and walking. The city will also be implementing a new system that allows people to pay for parking with their mobile device, which has several benefits. This will also allow drivers to extend their parking if they are away from the vehicle and provide real-time updates to bylaw officers. Although it won't cover 100% of our parking revenue because we still will have the meters, it will allow us to pull statistical data to be used to further maximize our parking stalls in the future. Currently, the City of Nelson collects over $1 million annually from parking meters to fund transportation infrastructure. All of the parking revenue goes directly into our capital reserves that fund our improvements for all transportation infrastructure, including roads, bike lanes, and sidewalks. This also means it is not just city residents that fund these costs, but everyone who benefits from our transportation network. The increased fees and fines project to bring the city an additional $400,000 in revenue. These changes align with the downtown parking strategy that was approved in 2021. More information can be found on the city's website at nelson.ca. Reporting in Nelson, Scott Onstruck, KCR News. And lastly, a Cortez Island designer with a company called Wits End is creating and selling prefab plywood structures to the size of 4 by 8 feet or 8 by 8 feet for working or studio spaces. Lonnie Taylor has the scoop. This? is a CKTZ News Update. I'm Lonnie Taylor. Wits End is a company based on Cortez and Hornby Island that is offering prefabricated house. I spoke with the builder, Arnab Olafsson, to find out more about this unique local prefabricated building option, what kind of applications it has, and how it is accessible to locals. Arna Olafsson. So let's talk about the these buildings that you're fabricating. Do you remember the moon swing at the co-op? Yeah. Oh, yeah. 
So that was me. That was my first full on plywood design. And I learned everything I needed to know about plywood from that moon swing. It so you have the CNC machine and you have this design for a puzzle house, as you call it. And that means you're able to produce as many of these uh, puzzle house kits as you want. But it says on your website, you can also customize them. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. The, the radius of the arch of the roof is 77 inches. And it is too steep for metal. But plywood, three-eighths plywood works great. And EPDM is a great roof for that size. And uh, and you can just glue EPDM. Uh, there's a product that's just been approved for EPDM to plywood is M1. And it's great because it's a polyether and it's low VOC. So now some of your techniques aren't so new. They're actually pretty ancient. I saw that you were using the Japanese technique for preserving the wood. Tell me yeah. what that's called. Yakisu. It just, it means burnt cypress. And I, our red cedar is almost identical to their cypress. And so I started it on cedar, but it, the process looks great on plywood and all of our local woods, alder, maple, fir. Beautiful. So what is the square footage for your standard puzzle house? Okay, the eight wide is eight feet wide on the outside of the plywood of the walls. So the inside is eight feet wide minus about five inches. And you put a three quarter inch face on each end of the puzzle house. And then you put a, a new truss every 45 inches. So it can be as long as you want that eight wide by as long as you want. You know, if you got a 30 foot trailer, you could just keep going. I see. So it's eight feet wide and yep. 45 inch lengths is how long it could be any of those. So what is the base price for that you're selling these kits? I'm not sure, but I think it's around 3,500. And okay. that would be with me doing the floors because I've got a, I've got a lightweight design for floors. And if you want to just skip that, it would be whatever would be knocked off the price. So are you actually constructing the homes as well? Because I saw on the website, like their kits, like you have all the pieces stacked. Do you offer it for other people to put it together themselves? Yeah, but I haven't had any takers. About how long does it take for you to produce all the pieces for one of these puzzle houses? I think I worked it out that if it was in a running shop, I could do three eight by 12 buildings a week. Wow, that's pretty productive. How more expensive do you think you'll be selling the full completed homes, the four wide and the eight foot wide? I don't know. It's not done yet. Depends on how much, how much time it takes you to make. Yeah. Okay, cool. So far, have you sold some of these on Hornby Island previously? Yep. We've got one running as a barn that's not, uh, it's not finished on the interior at all. So it's for animals? For hay. For hay. Okay, yeah. cool. And what other types of uses have people gotten them for? A lodger, just like a... Like a sleeper cabin? Yeah, like a little sleeper. So the this four wide version build that I have that I'm working on now is it's really great for a little sleeper cabin. A double bed fits 
about three feet up high. Double bed fits right across the whole thing. And the walls are even more canted because I use the same elbow as the big building, which gives you a nice sort of angle of a couch to lean against the wall. And then the whole other side is just all twin wall polycarbonate. And I seal it with the polyether. So it acts as an insulator. And polyether, I'm not familiar with that. In, it looks like I silicone, finish? but it, it looks like silicone, but nasty. Like silicone and all the other, all those other products, GeoCell and whatever, they're just like, ugh, they're just ridiculous, nasty chemicals. And this polyether, you can barely smell it. And it lays up in, in damp and it doesn't get hard. It's just, it's a great, it's a perfect product. I use it to glaze all the polycarbonate to the plywood to waterproof it. On the if the building's heated, everything's moving around. Like there's no vapor barrier. I don't use vapor barriers. I use the cork spray, the day cork. And I found that you can, I found a product that you can paint it with now. What I'm hoping is that the uh, builds will become popular and they're not, they don't require any sort of special instruction. The whole thing holds itself together. Once you get your roof panel on, you realize you're standing on three eighths inch plywood with a four foot span and you're like, how is this so solid? It's just because everything's helping each other hold together. Lonnie Taylor, CKTZ News, Cortez Island. CKTZ News is brought to you by the Local Journalism Initiative, the program funded by Heritage Canada and administered through the Community Radio Fund of Canada. And that's this week's episode of The Scoop, a podcast and broadcast featuring stories from remote BC by the journalists in the communities of Smithers, Cortez Island, Revelstoke, Kootenai, Prince George, and Terrace. This program was made possible by the Community Radio Fund of Canada and the Local Journalism Initiative Program. Tune in next week for another episode and follow us online wherever you get your podcasts.